Shri Gauri Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Jai Sri Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai. Shri Bhakti Rakshak Shridhar Dev Goswami Maharaj ki jai. Bhakti Siddhanta Swastita Kuru Prabhupada ki jai. Shri Bhakti Vinod Paribar ki jai. Hari Nam Prabhu ki jai. Shri Radhe ki jai. Radha Gubinda ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai. Gaur Prem Anande. Hari Gaur. Welcome everyone. So, I spoke a little bit this morning from Chaitanya Charitamrita. We are in um, Roy Ramananda, who was a learned person and, by all nonetheless appearance, a worldly person. I entered into a conversation with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who was uh, also a learned person, but uh, in appearance a very um, unworldly or otherworldly person. He was a sannyasin renunciate, a mendicant, traveling with no possessions, homeless in one sense, but embracing the whole world as his home and seeing beyond boundaries of nations and so forth, races and religions and whatnot. And as I say, the two of them met and they had a conversation. In the context of that conversation, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu asked some questions of Ramananda and he was disposed to do so because before leaving the seaside pilgrimage town of Jagannath Puri for his tour in South India, for visiting holy places, sacred rivers and so on and so forth, the um, elderly and learned Sarvabhauma, famous logician in the history of India, who had been recently swayed by the influence of the prem, of the love of that young sannyasin Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was only 25 years old. Sargoma was quite an elderly statesman, pundit, I should say. And um, anyway, Sargoma advised him, if you're going to go south, then something that I want to urge you to do is meet with this person, Rai Ramananda. You and him have something in common. I could tell that from the nature of the conversion that I've undergone through your association. Previously said I thought he was crazy, but now I know that there's some sense, there's some logic to his ramblings, so to speak. After all, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had just enlightened Sarvam in the logic of his Vedanta of love. Vedanta. Ved means knowledge, onto means end. When we say Vedanta here, it, it means more or less the metaphysic the world view, so to speak. So there's a world view, a metaphysical world view underlying the love that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was so much about. Just like there's a particular world view that underlies the love that worldly persons are about. How well thought out it is is another thing, but Vedanta has very wonderfully analyzed that world view nonetheless and, uh, and kind of made it naked, showed its naked form, and it's basically not that well thought out, it arises out of ignorance and misconception and selfishness that is just an unfortunate byproduct of our bodily identification because the body has needs and we have identified with it and so we are needy, that's a perception, but it has little to do with us, but by identification with matter in the form of this body and so forth. Those needs are superimposed. We've taken them on and we struggle for existence. And in the context of that, to meet those needs, we 
extend our sense of self into others, have relationships. And um, as much as these relationships are based on the misunderstanding that I'm the body and the identification with matter, that material life consists of an attachment, need, then they don't constitute really giving. They aren't really much in, uh, in terms of love because love, as I many times said, is about, as we know, is about giving, not about taking. So they're the neediness. They constitute these relationships, the neediness of one or two embodied. And so there's kind of a selfish bargaining in there. I'll give to you, and it's not consciously necessarily, but I'll give you something, you give me something. What do you think? Each person is agree. So the love of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is very, very different from this. Although the love that he's talking about, although it's often described, and how else can it be, with material examples, because it's not material, and we have no experience of anything that's not material, and our experience readily is in relation to material objects and circumstances and the way things work in this world. So examples are given from this world. But it only goes so far. Just like they say, attachment to a saintly person, the same attachment for material objects when transferred to a saintly person, which previously in relation to material objects caused distress, in relation to a saintly person causes happiness. But same, we have to look carefully at that word because it's not exactly the same because the attachment to worldly things is one in which I'm the taker. Attachment to saintly persons, if we listen to them and become attached to what they're actually talking about, what they embody, what they live for, what they represent, then attachments should disappear. And the illusion of my neediness, and then swelling up as one will, to some extent, in that company, with the fullness, one has some capacity to give. So the sameness of the attachment is that, well, one thing about it is material attachment just doesn't go away. You may change from one object to the next, to the next, to the next, but from salty to sweet to sour and so forth, but it stays. And it's binding. It can be given up, but not by just changing the object. It's a whole change of thinking and acting and so forth. And and moving again from this taking to this giving. So similarly, attachment to saintly persons, that will bring one happiness because it's enduring. It's the same in that sense, do you follow? <laughs> attachment to material objects will always bring you misery. Attachment to saintly persons will always make you happy. In other words, it's not really the best way to say it, perhaps, because it's not about being happy. The whole idea of love, priti, priti comes from the root. The word priti means love in Sanskrit, or praying, priti. It means, it implies that there must be an object in relation to which one is giving, sacrificing, not an object in relation to which one is taking. It's differentiated thereby from material happiness also, which sometimes there's no object. You just get a feeling, I feel happy. So this priti, this love that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was all about, has nothing to do with material happiness, but there is a similarity. And so similarly in talking about all these things, high spiritual things, we have to use, or great saints have seen fit to use material examples to help us kind of get a, a grip on them. So this is an important point in reference to the esoteric topic of today's 
gathering. Radha, what is it? She, hmm, what's it all about? You can paint a picture and there are stories and, and so on and so forth. But what essentially is trying to be conveyed by this idea of Radha, Astami, the appearance of Radha, Astami, of course, refers to the eighth day of this uh, waxing moon, the month of Bhadra in uh, Indian Hindu uh, terminology. So, at any rate, my point here basically is that this love is very extraordinary, and Sarvabhoma had been given by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu the kind of underlying metaphysic that supports this, that, that kind of thinking and orientation to life, which in of itself fosters a particular type of action that leads to a particular result. The metaphysic, the orientation, fosters bhakti, and bhakti has a result which is its own self, but in a mature form, prem, prem bhakti. So there's bhakti in practice, you hear about the metaphysic and you're, the more you hear about it, then you, you're kind of like forced, get cornered into acting a particular way. It's, it's hard to get away from it. And more so because it's not just the knowledge, so to speak, of the Vedanta, the underlying metaphysic, is not an inanimate thing. It's personified. It has a person behind it and it's outgoing. And like I've often said, that the acquisition of material knowledge, we are the subject and the knowledge is the object that we take and file on our computer or in our files and we pull it out when it's convenient and use it for our purpose. We gather knowledge for our purpose. We have an agenda and we collect things that we find are useful for it, information and so forth. And that helps us to act in terms of the pursuit of our agenda. But here, this is another kind of knowledge coming from up from down, where in relation to which we're an object and it's the subject. So it has an agenda, it's alive. Material knowledge, it only has a life in as much as we take it and we apply it in relation to ourselves. So we are the life. And of course we're acting, as I say, materially in ignorance of the knowledge that we have from an absolute perspective is kind of an ignorance, it's relative knowledge, how to do this, that, and the other thing, which all amounts to how to remain in the cycle of birth and death in a slightly better way or a slightly less way or this way or that way, but to never get out of it, which is never to get out of the confusion that I die, that I'm born, that I'm a body, that I matter, and so forth. So that kind of knowledge is not alive. We are alive. We bring it to life, material knowledge. There's the knowledge of how to drive a car. So somebody is given that knowledge, we may take it and bring it to life by becoming the driver. Otherwise, it just sits on the shelf. But this transcendental knowledge, it has a life of its own. And it has an agenda. We can't make it part of our agenda, although we may first approach it like that. But check it out. How I can use it for my purposes. But as we hear, we find out, oh, it has an agenda. And I'm on that agenda. It has a purpose for me. And it corners me, but in a charming way, in a compelling way intellectually. It's hard to get around, but also in a charming way, because we could turn away, after all. It was just appealing to our intellect, but it doesn't. It appeals to our emotions also, <laughs> and our feelings, and thus the charming Radha and Krishna. 
that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was so preoccupied with, their love, even though he was a sannyasin, detached person, no worldly connections, as I said, homeless in a sense, wandering from one place to the next, lying down where he needed a rest without consideration of how thick the mattress was or whether there was one or not, bathing in the rivers and, and so forth, but preoccupied with Radha and Krishna's love. So Sarvama got a glimpse of this. In other words, he got the mathematical language, if you will, that caused him to think that what that Ramananda was talking about before that I couldn't make sense out of. This is the logic to it, where he was preoccupied, which I thought was just kind of madness, emotional, material madness, so to speak. Actually, it's something very different. So he recommended that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, you're going to find somebody of like mind there in the South in this person of Ramananda, so take advantage of him. Keep his company. This is my advice to you. Ramananda was kind of beyond talking about the math of the whole thing. He had really done the equations and he was just living there. And though therefore preoccupied there, he was so there that his own personal conduct and activities were hard to figure out and understand as they manifest in the material world because he was not like in a calculating way practicing and engaging and he was gone. So his external activities didn't always correspond with his internal reality. I mean, they did, but they were so high, his internal reality was hard to understand. And he would have been passed by, perhaps, by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu because he appeared, as I said, like a worldly person. And the sadhus, saints, they kind of avoid worldly people. So, But he got the advice of Sarvabhoma, so he met with him and they had the conversation in the context of the conversation. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu asked the questions and Ramananda gave the answers. He asked the questions in such a way as to foster a certain type of answer. And Ramananda had a lot to give. So this morning we read a little bit from that conversation which, in the part in which Ramananda began to speak about Radha, Tattva, the phenomenon of Radha and how to understand that. Again, he didn't really go into the math of it entirely, but from the point of view of Rasa, spiritual love and aesthetic rapture, he talked about her. And in doing so, he cited one verse from the Bhagavatam. So it's a famous verse about uh, Radha. And let me use it as a basis from which to speak a little this, um, in our second session. Let me see now. I've lost the page. Let me see if I can find it. He says that, quotes from the Srimad Bhagavatam, he says, Anayaradi Tonunam Bhagavan Haririshpara Yonobihaya Gobinda Pito Yamanayadraha. So this comes in the uh, book Bhagavat, in the climax of the book, where the love between Radha and Krishna is consummated. And this in the context of many handmaidens, milkmaidens of Braj, all who have come in the dead of the night on the full moon, hearkening to the sound of Krishna's flute, romantic sound of his flute, inviting them to meet with him. And so they all come. And after some discussion, then the rasa dance of him is kind of a circular dance takes place. And then suddenly Krishna disappears from the dance. So there they were and their ideal was realized and apparently lost. So they went looking for him. And 
they followed his footprints in the forest. And at a certain point in the uh, search, they saw another set of footprints along with his set of footprints. And then they cited this verse. They could understand from this verse. They said, Dear friends, one gopi has been taken away by Krishna to a secluded place, and she must have worshipped the Lord more than anyone else. So we spoke about this a little bit in the morning, but of course there's much to be drawn from it. And um, one thing that comes to mind is that the way the other milk maidens are speaking about Radha is interesting in that they have depicted her as being very religious. They say here, Bhagavan Hari Ishvara that Anayaradita. Um, they say that this is one way of understanding the verse. It has many, many meanings to it. We can draw, but Aradita means Radita means to worship. This is where the name of Radha is derived from. Radha, Aradita. They said this morning the name Radha implies the presence of Krishna because it means the best form of worship, the highest worship. So there cannot be the highest worship in, in sacrifice and self-giving and love if there's not an object to which to give that love. And Krishna means the perfect object of love, irresistible, all-attractive, who one will be naturally drawn to, to give love to, to give service to, should they hear about him. So Radha and Krishna is kind of the perfect equation of love, perfect giving and the perfect object of love. So Radha means that, the perfection of worship, the perfection of love. Aradita. So here it says, Aradita, Bhagavan Hari Ishvara. Aradita Nunam Bhagavan Hari Ishvara. So this girl has worshipped Bhagavan, who is the Ishwar. He's in control. And because God being in control and doing whatever he likes. He likes her worship, therefore Hari. Hari means to take away. It's another name for God. He who takes away. He's taken her away from from us. So she's a very religious girl. This is an interesting point, because in the Leela, it's questionable. In the divine play of Radha and Krishna and the Braj, then her religiousness is somewhat in question, because she appears to be having a relationship with someone other than he to whom she is betrothed. We call it parakia or an adulterous relationship. So in the context of the divine play, she appears to be unchaste, and which would mean not very religious in the context of moral standards of the time, and this time as well, for that matter. But here they've said something different. They all want Krishna, all these gopis. He's the object of their love. But she must have worshipped Bhagawan very nicely. And being the controller, he took her away from us so that she could meet him in a secluded place and have him to herself. She is the most religious person. She is the most chaste person. In the way the Bhagavatam is saying to us, if we listen carefully, don't misunderstand this story of this meeting between Radha and Krishna and other gopis and so forth. This story is being told to kind of help us get some understanding of what this is about, which is really beyond words, beyond explanation. We're using 
material examples to kind of help us get a handle on it, so to speak. But it's beyond words, it's beyond thought. And you have to go beyond words, and you have to go beyond thought. And you have to be a rada in a sense. You have to become a giver. You have to follow in the lead of that uh, giving. And doing so, that giving has to be well thought out. There should be a metaphysic that underlies it so that it makes sense so that you actually give, number one, <laughs> rather than take, in the name of giving, and two, that you find an object that can really take all that you can have to give. And this is the idea of Krishna. So Radha is the complete giving and Krishna is the complete object of taking, so to speak, the giver and the enjoyer. So we are a giver of sorts in our capacity to give requires that we stop taking. This is the beginning of giving, to stop exploiting. It's a popular idea now, to stop exploiting. Gaudi Vaishnavism wants to take this to a very extreme point, as it should. As much as you can identify with the idea that exploitation is unbecoming, then how far do you want to go with that? How beautiful, in other words, do you want to become? This is the idea of Radha, depicted as she is, and so as a charming, beautiful young girl and so forth. What is the beauty of a young girl in love? It's very charming. So how far do you want to go with that? This is what Gaudiya Vaishnavism offers a challenge, so to speak, to all of those who, and who doesn't, agree that exploitation is unbecoming. Even exploiters will agree with that on some level. Even the thieves will want to divide the loot honestly amongst themselves, at least. So this is a universally accepted principle. And Gaudiya Vaishnavism wants to take it and play out the ramifications of that. How far does it go? And so when we look at exploitation, we can see it in very crude forms, it's obvious forms, then there may be more subtle, hidden forms, as people today are opposed to the exploitation of corporate uh, America, and when it appears that there's no war, there's a war going on through the banking systems, and and so forth and so on, and this kind of... It doesn't appear that it's exploitation when you know you go and buy something at a closed factory, but you don't know that it was made by people who were in slave labor or something in a third world country. And so as you explore and uncover the extent to which our, let's say, American, for example, existence is impacted by, involves us in exploitation, then you want to change the government or move to Europe or <laughs> or somewhere else. But uh, the more you look, the deeper you look, the more you find it's hard to get away from this. And the conclusion that one will arrive at is that it's the nature of the beast. It's just the nature of material existence. It's the nature of consciousness identifying with matter, which causes it to feel, as I said earlier, in need, in necessity, and be then on the take in some form or another. And civilized life means to just, you know, kind of push it under the rug and let's not exploit in a gross way, in a crude way. We have politically correct language and do it all right and so forth. But really, when you get to the bottom of it, you've got to disentangle yourself from this bodily identification which forces you to be a taker. The extent that we can come out from that, we can actually be a lover. And coming out from that, we do come out from that. Really, to the extent that we forego exploitation, whatever we can identify it. We actually become, just using this example, you bought clothes from, you know, The Gap or something, and then you found it, I don't know if it's true, but they're about their company, but you found out, well, okay, The Gap's a good example. You found out that they were cutting down redwoods all over Mendocino County, you know, and that's what they do, and 
deforesting, whatever, and so you don't want to buy from them anymore. Your sense of self grows when you do that. Like you find out, for example, oh, they were employing people in a crude way in Latin America or Asia or something like that. You grow and you identify with those people. You grow out of your small national identity to a world identity. And so, so this is a growing that comes from giving, the beginning of which is giving up exploitation. So we have to empty ourselves out of that. That's the beginning. That's what detachment is about. That's the knowledge. That's what the Vedanta, the whole thing, helps us to at least understand it theoretically. So, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, as I say, wants to play this out to the extreme, and in a sense, the personification of that, the theological and philosophical ramifications of a life not only of no exploitation, but then the positive side of giving, not taking, but giving as well, ends up in the person of Radha and the affairs of Radha and Krishna. I mean, that's a long road to go to bring somebody to there, to figure that out, to understand it. That's what's being said here. And um, it takes not only lifetimes of hearing these kind of things, exploring them, but applying oneself. At some point, it'll really start to click. Then, And what is bhakti? She bhakti devi, she is. The very personification of bhakti. End of giving. What is the difference between happiness and preeti and love and brain? How, as I said, Preeti is always involves an object to which one is giving, always. There is happiness that comes from that, but one accepts the happiness only because it gives pleasure to the one one is giving to. See how far removed this is from our ordinary sense of material happiness. And sometimes we approach the spiritual idea with a view to be happy, to satisfy ourselves. The point is you won't be satisfied by trying to satisfy yourself, you'll be taking. And it's really hard to grasp in one sense, but you can understand it to some extent, theoretically. But it's true, the giving is the getting, but we almost don't like to say it, because the getting is so um, much the antithesis of what real life and progressive life, meaningful life, fulfilling life, is about. <laughs> you can't get away from it, because that's the nature of the object of love, the perfect object of love. The more you give the more he reciprocates and gives back. And you accept it because it makes him happy. It makes that perfect object of love happy. So this is, anyway, the dynamic of that. But it's very different than our material pursuit of happiness. So we should think about this a little bit when we enter the path of bhakti. And when we come here, for example, how I'll be happy. Think how we can make the, the place happy. The residents, the deity, the cows, and so forth come with a giving spirit in mind. So she, anyway personifies that, and interestingly enough, as I say, in the context of the Leela, she appears to be kind of taking, because running away from your husband and children in the middle of the night to go with another man is pretty selfish. Gee, you have a lot of responsibilities and obligations, and even if you don't like him, what about the kids? That kind of thing. You know, so Not that she had children, but uh, rather, but... Some gopis said they did, but anyway, that's in a whole other theological discussion. But anyway, they went, and the village would have been marred, as all the girls in this village are like this. Oh, don't go there. All the girls over there, they're prostitutes. And the whole village's reputation, and the parents, and all this, just forget all that. We're going anyway. 
very selfish, just taken by the lust of the moment. And so this is how it appears in the story. But the story is, of course, is to be heard from the right people. And again, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was the right person. And how was he living? As a sannyasin, completely renounced, no material attachments. How do these two things go together? So we enter in through persons such as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then the underlying philosophy of it. And we have to study it very carefully. We have to pay close attention to it to figure out what's going on. This is a way in which through the context of the narrative of the Leela of Radha and Krishna's love, we're forced to like really pay attention to get it. That's important. If you pay close attention, what is said is unwanted things will go away from your heart. As you pay close attention, you'll understand the underlying, the Vedanta that underlies it, and make, start to make some sense out of it. I've said before that love has a tendency to hide itself, to camouflage itself, because it knows that it can't be shared with anybody and everybody. If you just go out in the street and express your love for your girlfriend or boyfriend, people like it to a point, but after a while they say, you know, do it somewhere else. It's unbecoming. They just don't, they're not able to enter into it. It's, it's for you to, we appreciate it, but do it, you know, in your own place. So it has to hide itself, and it has its own kind of language, so to speak. People in love have names for one another that you know only they know, and they use them even in the context of speaking with other people, and secret messages are sent and so forth. And so love conceals itself, so to speak. And so this highest love that Bhagavatam speaks about, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was absorbed in, it's a very special thing. We're talking about really the heart of the Absolute. So if you want to enter there, it's not just by a casual reading that that's going to be possible. You're going to have to pay attention. And if you pay attention, and again, what's going to happen? You're going to become cornered intellectually. And that means in terms of your personal integrity is going to be brought out. Are you going to be honest here? Does this make sense? I mean, Bhagavatam says, I said it before in one of the other talks a few weeks back, the Bhagavatam says in one sense, bring your arguments, bring them. You have doubts, bring it, bring your logic, bring your reasoning, come on, bring it. Inviting us to debate, bring your intellect. It's, it's open like both hands and inviting us. So bring and study me and see. And what happens is Bhagavatam defeats your intelligence. In other words, it shows you your intelligence is nothing. It has no purchasing power for love, for ultimate realization. It has some utilization, but ultimately it's not the kind of currency that can buy you a house in a land where there's no no death. It can't give you a life there, a house there, a vacation, a permanent vacation. It's not possible, not by intellect, but by surrender of the heart and so it gives a challenge. And if we study it carefully, then there's some scope for understanding this Leela. It conceals itself so that we have to pay close attention. And close attention in one sense means hearing from realized people about it. And that means also you can't just make it part of your agenda. No, it comes from up to down. It's explained and distributed and given. Preeti is independent. Love is independent. So it gives itself if it wants to. You can't get it. You have no right to it. It's not our born right. We are tatasta, jeev. How much ananda is in the jeev? Negligible portion. 
And here Radha is the personification of Ananda, Ladini. The wonderful teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is that the measure of her love can come in the jiva. It's like taking a drop that's in the process that's practically evaporated <laughs> and then putting an ocean on top of it. If you understand this, this is the dispensation of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then you say, well, you'd be crazy to go anywhere else. This is a refined philosophical point. What is the nature of the self? And according to the fine analysis of um, Jiva Goswami, we exist, sat, we are cognizant to some extent of ourself. We can be cognizant of ourselves. And there's a tiny bit of joy in our constitution that kind of amounts to the amount of joy that you could experience if misery was removed. So if we remove the misery material identification brings on, oh, there's some happiness to that. There's some relief. But this is so small in comparison to the, the nature of the happiness, the preem, the ananda, the joy, that is a byproduct of this love that's kind of packed into this giving, so to speak, as much as I say the giving, the getting is the giving. And the opportunity has to be given to us. That is the avatar, the descent of God, to give the opportunity. And through the guru, parampara, chain of you know, distribution, this opportunity comes to us. So it's a great opportunity. We should take advantage. We should pay close attention. And we should approach it with a serving kind of disposition. Not to take, but to give, of course, in the beginning. We, you know, we're going to want to take. And it's good to take for yourself. So charity begins at home. So give to yourself and take a deep drink of the teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and it will have a wonderful effect upon you. Ultimately, it comes to this. What is the nature of Radha's love for Krishna? So we understand here, in a basic sense, it's a religious kind of love. In other words, it's not what it appears to be, some kind of adulterous affair. The Bhagavatam isn't advocating, hey, if you really want to be happy, run off with somebody else's husband, you know, or cheat on your husband or something like that. That's exciting and it doesn't have, you know, the kind of day-to-day -day drag that a relationship, you know, maintaining a relationship requires and all the effort and the work in that and so forth. And, hey, you can just, you know, hey, if there's milk in the market for free, why keep a cow? Why do the work? I can just go here, there, and, and everywhere. And, uh, you know, as much as the Bhagavatam in the story of Radha and Krishna looks like it's saying that, if you just look at a glance, it's actually saying quite the opposite. It gives so much more and appropriately so, attention to and praise to a ordinary material relationship of love that's enduring, that where people do the work to have the relationship, if they feel in need of one, where they do the work and they stick with one another, they make sacrifices, and so this is much more meaningful. And I can tell you also, milk from the cow is much better than from the store. <laughs> it really is. It's much better, much much richer, much more nutritious, and ultimately it's a lot more fun, too. <laughs> so, no, Bhagavatam isn't advocating this, to run away. But Krishna appears like that, like he's going with so many ladies, right? And so many gopis came, he played the flute, so many milkmaidens came. But the point of the story is also this, that one of them, his love rests in, retires there. Radha, you know, Radha means, the word means worship, as I say, the best kind of worship, 
and by that we mean this kind of giving, this kind of the ultimate love. In the Leela, she's born like eighth day of the, is it the waxing moon? Yeah, of the month of Bhadra, this month. So there's a particular constellation. The moon, in Indian astrology and astronomy, there are like 27 nakshatras, like constellations, kind of arrangements of stars, and the moon passes through all 27 of these in its phases. Every month when it's full, it's in one of these. And so it's passing through all of them. Krishna is compared to the moon sometimes. Of course, he's a Kalchandra. He's a black moon. <laughs> but moon is like described in the Vedas as being full of nectar and power to, to nourish and satisfy, satisfy the taste. Because it was thought that the moon and planting at least used to be done like this in consideration of the phases of the moon. When we were in Costa Rica last time, then those we bought the property from were farmers, and they were talking about planting. And Vrindavan was asking, "How many seasons can you grow tomatoes, and how many can you grow cauliflowers, and so forth?" And they were explaining, and they were talking about planting according to the phases of the moon, and so forth. Anyway, the idea in ancient times was that the moon caused the vegetables to be sweet, to bring out the taste. So it was like the deity, or the nectar. It was the deity of the mind. And when it's full, it, the mind is pleased and happy and, and so forth. So, moon, and of this uh, nectar, and he uh, lights the sky in contrast to the dark sky at night, black moon. It stands out more than the sun. I mean, the sun's out all day. We don't think much of it. We don't notice it that much. But, but the full moon and the dark night, it really you know, captures your attention. So Krishna sometimes compared to the moon, and he's moving through these different... Phases, kala means phase, also, or time. And it also means art. Krishna is, incidentally, born under the nakshatra of Rohini. And um, if you study that astrologically, it talks about the person that's born under that asterism, he'll be like this. He'll be an artisan and a cultured person, a little bit politician, like he was at Kurukshetra speaking the Bhagavad Gita, and diplomatic and so forth, and Mathura and Dwarka. And kind of a lover, a big lover, actually, really a, a ladies' man, and uh, questionable in terms of his fidelity also. There were rumors about him going with other ladies and so forth. <laughs> so we study the nature of Krishna, and he appears to be such. And, and so the example of the moon, it passes through all these nakshatras are considered to be like wives of the moon. He's got many of them stays with one, one month, one, one night, one another night, and so forth. But the Vishaka constellation is particular because, in a couple of ways, Vishaka is the constellation in which the moon appears full during springtime. And springtime is the season of love, and it's said in ancient lore to enhance that springtime, the fullness of the moon. So in the constellation of Vishaka, the moon's fullness is enhanced and able to be appreciated that much more. The Krishna moon is Kal Chandra. Chandra means moon. Kal means dark. So Bhagavan, God, illumines everything. But Krishna's dark, it means it's kind of hard to figure out sometimes, this Krishna. We say he's God, but I guess, again, you've got to pay close attention to figure out what's really meant there. 
And how so? Because some of his lila seems almost contradictory to what is the basic religious teaching. He's a thief, and uh, <laughs> he doesn't always tell the truth, it seems, and his amorous affairs are questionable, and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, it requires some special light for that to bring out what is the nectar of the dark moon of Krishna. I mean, even in his fullness, particularly in Vrindavan, he's dark, he's black, the black moon. So this Bishaka constellation, you see, Bishaka, excuse me, I didn't mention this, but is another name for Radha. So the Vishaka constellation is also called Radha. Vishaka means branch, like a branch on a tree. So what happens when you see the full moon in the tree? You know, when the moon's coming up, you're standing next to a tree, it looks like the moon is sitting right on the branch there, as opposed to when it's way up in the sky. At that time, it's so full, just coming up, it looks like it's sitting right on the branch, it looks like you could just reach out and take it. The illusion visually is like, it's right there, I could just like climb up that tree and grab him. So, the idea is that the Vishaka constellation brings out the beauty of the moon in springtime, enhances it, and like a branch, the moon is resting there in that constellation. That's where he really takes his rest. That's where he feels most complete, most appreciated, and through that branch is made most available to everyone. Orada is revealing, making available the dark moon of Krishna and bringing that nectar, so to speak, into our lives. So, to approach Krishna through Radha, this is the idea of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. In other words, to approach God through the means of love to the extent that love itself becomes the deity because it's understood that Krishna himself finds his resting there. He's actually, while he appears to have many lovers, bought and paid for, overpaid for, so to speak, by Radha. She may appear to be unchaste. He may appear to have many lovers. The fact of the matter is they're completely swakiya, completely belonging. If there's anything wrong with astrology, people sometimes ask, well, how much stock should we put in astrology? Well, you think of it like this. According to their chart, they're incompatible. So how much stock will you put in astrology? Because Radha and Krishna are completely, absolutely compatible. Perfect, made perfectly for one another. But <laughs> according to the stars, there's some problem. Of course, this is a whole other thing. This makes possible then the apparent marriage of Radha to another, so there can be parakia in the Leela. But point is here, as Radha is religious, righteous, and this is Dharma, but it's come in the shape of Prema Dharma. So when Dharma, or doing the right thing, goes so far in the direction of doing the right thing and moving away from the ugly thing of exploitation and so forth, it starts to take a form that looks kind of like the exploitation. Just as if you go far enough to the right, you end up far enough north, you end up south, right? So, you know, if you take the two ends of the extreme, you take tamaguna, the material mode of inertia, and the sattvagun, the material mode of intelligibility, and so forth, and how they affect the psyche of a person. The tamaguna makes one detached out of ignorance. I don't care. That's not really a detached person. I'm not cleaning my room because I don't care about it. I don't care about getting a job because I'm detached. Meanwhile, your existence is absolutely miserable. You should get some passion and start to improve your material situation. On the other end, in sattva, then, one's also detached. So there's a kind of a semblance of 
similarity. You can find sadhus living in the forest, and you can find monkeys living in the forest. Sadhus only eat fruits and live underneath the tree, and monkeys do the same, but they're very different in their consciousness. Monkeys in the tamaguna, and the sadhus in the sattvaguna, or more. So, similarly, from this adharma, if we move from adharma to dharma, there'll be a, an apparent change. If we move further within dharma and we come to prema dharma, the dharma, the righteousness that turns into love, love of God, unalloyed love, then it takes on an appearance, so to speak, of adharma to conceal itself and hide itself from everyone except those who really want to go there, who have been inspired by a sadhu to go there and are ready to take the necessary steps, which means applying oneself physically, mentally, and intellectually. So this metaphysics, so to speak, this is how we are intellect. Bhagavatam says, here, bring your intellect here. I can satisfy it. If you want to challenge me, I can eradicate your doubts, and then I'll tax your intellect to its extreme for understanding what I'm about, what I'm talking about when I'm speaking about this love dance between Radha and Krishna. So point anyway here is that she's the personification of religiousness, and he is as well, actually. They're, they belong to one another. He finds his rest in her. He finds his fulfillment in her. And this is a very interesting point because, as I've many times said, all religions are teaching us about the most worshipable object and we are teaching about the worshipable object of the most worshipable object. If God is the most worshipable object, we are teaching about the object of God's love. That's kind of like, you know, give this to the Buddhists. Here's his cone for you. you know? This is the answer. If you ask... Well, if God's the source of everything, what's the source of God? And people ask this kind of a dumb question in a way. But I read a book that the Dalai Lama was asked this in. I was reading, it was in, in the bookstore, and I just picked it up. And the student asked the Dalai Lama, if God's the source of everything, what's the source of God? And he said, well, that's why we don't believe in God. That was his answer. Because I thought, wow, well, it's going to be an interesting answer. Let's see what he says. Because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's illogical. Buddhism is concerned about some kind of supposed to be logically based and so forth, rather than on revelation. But I said, well, I thought, well, we have a very different answer. If Krishna is God and Krishna is the source of everything, and who is the source of Krishna? We have an answer. That's Radha. So who is the source of Radha? Krishna. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of like, think about it long enough and you come up with this, if you get it right. What's the source of God? If God's the source of everything, what's the source of God? This is your koan. For meditation. If you do it right, this is the answer you come to. In other words, if God's the source of everything, He's giving everything. And where does He come from? He comes from giving also. So, Radha, her love corresponds with Krishna, and Krishna corresponds with her love. The two are, this is the metaphysic, achintya, veda, veda, tattva. Radha and Krishna are one, philosophically indifferent in terms of the religious or expression of that, loving expression of that philosophy. Radha is the personification of love that causes reality to go crazy, so to speak, then to dance, to be maddened. The idea in Gaudiya Vaishnavism is love is the supreme deity, love of Krishna. Of course, love of Krishna is, if you want Krishna, this is the way to get it, love of Krishna. So get love of Krishna. Krishna is in love of Krishna, not anywhere else. Sometimes people say, have you seen Krishna? What do we say? I don't know, I wasn't looking. I haven't been looking. Someone's challenged you, they say, you're a saint, have you seen Krishna? In one sense, the right answer is, I don't know, I wasn't looking. 
That's not the teaching. I haven't been taught to look for Krishna. I've been taught to look for how to serve Krishna. Do you understand? Krishna is found in service to Krishna, not otherwise. Otherwise, that will just be imaginary. He's completely possessed and conquered by Radha's love. But that's the extreme of service and love. If you want Krishna, don't look for Krishna. Look for service to Krishna. If you want Krishna, look to Radha. She has Krishna. He's bought and paid for there, conquered. So she becomes the object of Krishna's worship. She's the most worshipable object in the eyes of Krishna. So while Krishna is the most worshipable object, he has a most worshipable object. This is the idea of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and that is the meaning of, of Radha. Her love is oceanic, and it speaks really of, as much as it seems to be focused in a particular way and specific, love of Krishna, love of Radha for Krishna, two people loving one another, it speaks about universal love, if you understand the philosophical underpinnings of it. And so poets sometimes have talked about it that way too, in poetic language, like for example, you have in the Bhagavat cosmology seven oceans, ocean of liquor, an ocean of salt, an ocean of sweet water, an ocean of sugar cane, an ocean of ghee. Um, I don't know if that's seven. So you take them, poetic language, it's been sometimes described. Radha, the personification of the purest, highest love of Krishna, is all these oceans. And if the world in the cosmological picture of the Bhagavad is surrounded by all these oceans, it means that this love is universal. For example, her love, we'll find later in this conversation between Roy Ramana and the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, a description of the body, the form of Radha, and we find he's describing her forehead is like this, her earrings are like this, her waist is like this, and it's all these different qualities and so forth. It means to say that she's got a form, but it's not a material form. She's the form of cleverness, for example. And this cleverness, poets will say, her cleverness in love indicates that her love is the source of the sweet water ocean. And her love is the embodiment of compassion. And so she's the source of the ghee ocean because compassion melts one's heart, but the embodiment of compassion, her whole body is melting, not just the heart. An ordinary person's heart will melt. But her whole body is melting in compassion. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was said to embody that compassionate love of Radha. He's just melting. I'm melting. Not like the wicked witch of the West, for her reasons, but out of love, out of, out of compassionate love. And so then they'll say, therefore, she's the ocean of ghee, which is like the melting of butter, right? <laughs> it's just melted out, and it's just most concentrated and nourishing form. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was giving in the most concentrated, nourishing form this love that Radha is about, extending her compassionate nature. And then they'll say, well, what else? Her luster, like the luster of a jewel or a pearl, is so intoxicating to Krishna that he loses his balance. Even her girlfriends then lose balance seeing him intoxicated by her luster. Therefore, her luster is the source of the ocean of liquor. And like this, and they'll say, oh, that she is Mahabhava, and Mahabhava, the highest ecstasy, Bhava is anurag, intensified. Anurag is like spiritual attachment for the perfect object of love, attached to 
so that he's seen always new and ever fresh every time you look at him. That's one of the distinguishing characteristics of Anuraga. When that's intensified, it becomes Mahabhav. So, therefore, she's the source of the ocean of milk. Because if you take milk, Anuraga is compared to like boiling milk and intensifying it, and it becomes thicker and thicker and thicker and richer and richer and, and richer. Her Mahabhav is the churning into an ocean of condensed milk. And this is how the poets have discussed her affection. Like sometimes motherly love is the personification of affectionate love. Of course, you hear that Vatsalya and Madhuri are incompatible, but they are, this is not entirely so. In Radha, it's not so. In Radha's love, Mahabhav, all the Bhavas of Vrindavan are present. Dasya, Sakya, Vatsalya, Madhurya. She tastes all of them. Sometimes, for, every day, for example, she's cooking for Krishna. So she experiences that kind of motherly and affectionate love. It is true. Ask any woman that men are like children. That's how they think. <laughs> men are just like children. You have to do everything for them. In the romantic relationship, even, they show some motherly love comes from that as well. So then they say, oh, this, she's this, this way. In this sense, she's the mother of everything and the source then of the ocean of, of yogurt which is mostly made out of milk and and um, just turned in such a way that you get the most from it. You know, like for your digestive system, which is the source of eating and you know healthy life, ah, there's nothing like that. It's better than milk. It's turned, and by turning, it increases the digestive fluids and juices and, and whatnot. And so mother wants to nourish the son, so like yogurt, milk, transformed. So there's the liquor ocean, and there's the milk ocean, and there's the, the ghee ocean, liquor, and salt. Salt is the last. We know about that one. Salty ocean. So the playfulness of Radha's nature, her love is made of, is compared to the salt ocean. She's the source of the salt ocean because her playfulness is such that, oh, by hearing about that, it's purifying like bathing in the ocean. But at the same time, you cannot imitate that any more than you can drink salt water without getting sick. So if you try to imitate that and not follow it through Guru Parampara and so forth and misconstrue it, her playful love, as ordinary material, that'll be like just drinking salt water and you'll just get sick from that. The poets have taken the cosmology of the Bhagavad and they want to say, basically, as I'm saying, her love is the personification of universal love using the analogies of the metaphor of the stars and the moon and the oceans and all these things, they want to kind of bring it home to that as well. It's that, you know, to an extreme, because it's a love that is universal that is arrived at by transcending the limitations of material existence. You cannot arrive, it means to say, at universal love without that prerequisite. And here's the best way to accomplish that prerequisite, to come out from exploitation the life of exploitation, and into the center of the world of love, what better way to do that than by hearing about that world of love? And it's so easy. It's nice to hear about it, and it's kind of easy to identify with because it has some apparent similarity to worldly love, which is exploitation. But that makes it more easier for us to identify with. Okay. Again, this is also, it's, then it's generosity. Do you understand? The love shows itself like that and lets its generosity because it makes it easier for you to get a handle on it. Oh, I can love Krishna just like that. 
girl can think, he could be my perfect boyfriend. Great, because all these other guys are driving me, you know, nuts, or they're just falling short in so many ways. So, <laughs> But then when you get into it, you find there's more to it than that. It's a little different, but it's attractive anyway. The stories are attractive and so on and so forth. And and they are real, but there's more to them than what we can make out, as well as say, with our mind. Therefore, again, you have to listen and listen to a good source. And if you do, what will happen is you'll be inspired to change your life. And only to the extent that you change your life, really, from taking to giving, and you start to get access into what this is all about. It's not just a head full of information. So, anyway, some few words on the topic of Radha. Sri Radhastami ki jai. Sri Radha Mahamotsubhati ki jai. Bhutanandi.